guest in our audience, and we are so thankful for that. If you haven't already done so, please fill out one of the Let's Get Acquainted cards that you find on the pew in front of you, and you can hand that to me as you leave, or just leave it on the end of the pew, and that will be fine. Also, we have a number of special guests today. We are so thankful for those who serve in the law enforcement community, those who serve in our local government as well. We appreciate you for being here with us today. We want you to know that you are indeed our honored guest. We'll have more to say about that during the lunch hour as we have a special presentation downstairs in the fellowship hall. But we are so thankful that you are here. We want you to know that today. We are also honored today to have with us Daniel Rogers. As I mentioned in the Bible class hour, I have known Daniel for quite a number of years now. Uh, he began dating a young lady who attended the congregation where I preached in West Tennessee and have seen him grow uh, into a, not only a husband but a father. Allie, one of his daughters, is here with him today. Uh, his other daughter, Abby, is at home with Jamie, but we are, uh, Jamie is his wife, but we are so thankful that Daniel and Allie have been able to come our way today. Daniel is a practicing attorney, as he mentioned in the Bible class hour, in Humboldt, Tennessee, over in West Tennessee, and is doing a, a great job there. He's preached the gospel for a number of years as well. And we're so thankful for that. We're glad to have him here with us today. Now what I'm about to say about Daniel is probably one of the best things about him. And also for some, probably one of the worst things about him. And that simply is this. Alabama is one of his loves. Alabama football. He is a great Alabama fan. And he helped me hold down the fort when I was up in West Tennessee for the Alabama fans. Now, for the Auburn folks, you know, that's probably a bad thing. And sometimes you hesitate to mention it, but we are glad that he is, he is here. The most important thing is that he is a godly man, a Christian. We want him to speak to us today. Had a fine lesson in the Bible class hour, and we'll turn the floor over to him. As Mark mentioned, it's been, I was just thinking about that this morning, Mark, 16 years, I suppose, since we met. And uh, we enjoyed a good friendship in West Tennessee. I always said that as good Alabama fans, we were doing mission work in heathen lands up there. But we, uh, we enjoyed that friendship and continue to enjoy it, and I appreciate the invitation to be here today. My phone rang one evening as I was just finishing up my supper. And I looked down on the phone to see who was calling, and it was Sergeant Heath Smith of the Humboldt Police Department. Now that would probably be a strange phone call for most folks in my position to be getting after supper time. Because at that particular time, I was employed at the public defender's office. If you don't know what a public defender is, if you're charged with a crime and you cannot afford a lawyer... The court will appoint public defenders, and they're paid by the state to represent you. So I looked down at my phone, and it's Sergeant Smith from the Humboldt Department, and I answered the phone, and I said, Hey, Heath, what's going on? And he says, I've just arrested a young man. And he said, You're probably going to get appointed to him, but I wanted to talk to you first. 
and we began to talk. And he began to tell me about this particular young man whom he had arrested. He said he thought he was a good kid, had some rough spots in life, had run into a bad crowd, had developed a drug habit, but he wanted to help him. And he said, I just wanted to give you a call before the charges come down, before he goes to court. Wanted to know if you'd go over and see him in the jail and see if you can get the ball rolling, see if you can help this kid. And you know, that was one of a number of phone calls like that that I was privileged to receive. And I always counted it a very high honor that the police officers would call me on occasion. And most of the time the phone call would start out something like this. I know we're on opposite sides of this, but... And we'd begin to talk. Because the fact was we both knew we weren't on opposite sides when it all came down to it. We were different cogs in the machine, but we were both trying to bring about justice, right, what was good for society and for individuals. And the fact that we could work side by side and hand in hand made me very glad. You know, it wasn't so long ago that that same officer visited my office. And he came upstairs and sat down in my office and he said, uh, I want you to pray with me about something. He said, I know I'm a sergeant and most of the officers in the department are ahead of me in rank. But he said, our chief's getting ready to retire and the mayor has asked me if I will accept his nomination for assistant chief when that transition takes place. And I was privileged to be able to sit there and pray with him about that promotion that he's looking forward to. I love our law enforcement officers. They do so much for so many people that so few people ever know about. It's those phone calls behind the scene where they're trying to help someone even though perhaps they've got to get them off the street that night. Even though they've got to stop a situation where somebody can get hurt, they're trying to help. And I appreciate that. I love that. And there's little doubt in my mind that surely God had in mind situations just like that when He inspired certain passages to be written in the New Testament. And it's those passages to which I want to direct our attention this morning as we study together. And I want to begin in a peculiar place, perhaps in the 20th chapter of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 20 a conversation that the Herodians had with Jesus. Begins in verse 19, Luke chapter 20. Read with me. And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken a parable against them. And they watched him and sent forth spies, which should feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words, so that they might deliver him unto the governor, or unto the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar, or no? But he perceived their craftiness, and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. 
And he, and he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. I want to start there because in that passage, Jesus recognizes that there is a right and lawful place in God's scheme of things for the civil authorities that exist. The passage that was read to us just a moment ago from Romans 13, we're about to delve into deeply, that talks in about the fact that God has delegated authority to the civil powers that be. But I want you to notice here that when these folks came to Jesus and they wanted to tempt him, and they said, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? They thought they were setting him up on the horns of a dilemma. They thought on the one hand, if Jesus says, yes, you ought to pay tribute to Caesar, then they could turn around to their Jewish friends and say, see, this man's no friend of the Jews. This man is no Messiah. You see, the Jews, by and large, hated the Romans. The Romans were an occupying power. They were foreigners who came in and took over the rulership of the land of Judah, over the land of Palestine. And the Jews, the Jews who lived there considered themselves essentially to be in prison under Roman rule. And they hated Romans by and large. And so if Jesus said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, they could use that to paint him as someone who was disloyal to the Jewish nation. On the other hand, if he said, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then they could turn around and run to the Roman authorities and say, see, this man's out here advocating the fact that we should, we should fight against Rome, that we should not pay taxes to Rome, that we should be anarchists and we should stir up rebellion. Either way, they thought, they had it. The problem, of course, was that they didn't take into consideration that God had a place in his plans for the civil authorities all along. In fact, as we mentioned this morning in our Bible class hour, if they had read their Old Testament and known what Daniel was prophesying in Daniel 2 and verse 44, they might have been well equipped to recognize that it was in the days of those Roman kings that God had planned to set up the kingdom that he had prophesied by Daniel. But in any case, Jesus' answer to them teaches us a lot as Christians about how we ought to view the civil authorities around about us. And Jesus said to them, you render to Caesar the things that be Caesar's. In other words, there's a proper place for the civil authorities and give them their proper respect. And to God, the things which be God's. There's a proper place for God. And he is to be given his proper respect. And we ought to keep those things in perspective, but they are not mutually exclusive. Now, with that in mind, turn with me over to the 13th chapter of the book of Romans. And let's look at those first seven verses again. Romans 13, and let's look at verses 1 through 7. Paul writing here says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid." 
for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now notice this in verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. Question. Who does that leave out? It doesn't leave anybody out, does it? Every soul encompasses everyone. And Paul says, let every soul be subject unto the ruling authorities, is the idea there, the governing authorities, the powers. For there is no power but of God. We mentioned it in passing this morning in our Bible class hour that when Paul penned these words, Nero was Caesar on the throne on the throne in Rome. Perhaps one of the most wicked men who have ever lived. And I don't know all the whys and wherefores that God raises up the particular powers that he does. I simply know that this pow- this passage says there is no power but of God. I also know that it was that very same God who said, My ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. One of the most helpful analogies that I've ever heard was someone who described to me the picture of someone who was walking in a valley and someone who was standing on a mountaintop. And they said, Picture the difference in the perspective between the person down in the valley versus the person up on the mountaintop. And they said, we live in the valley. Our perspective is hemmed in by the limits that we have as mortal human beings. The circumstances that we can see and know about, the things that are right in front of our faces and the things that we understand, we see those things, but there are limits. We're hemmed in by the mountains around about us. But God is like that man up on the mountaintop who has such broad perspective. He can see down in the valley and he can see over on the next mountaintop and on past there for miles and miles. He sees and knows and understands things that I can never see or know or understand. And when he raises up individuals and places them into positions of power, although I may not be able to understand why, nevertheless this passage says there is no power but of God. And furthermore, the powers that be are ordained of God. Wow. That's a powerful passage. That means whether I like or dislike the individuals who hold positions of authority as a child of God, as a subject of the divine sovereignty, when I come into contact with the rulers of this world, with the positions of authority in this world, I need to keep in mind those people are there because God placed them there. And to the extent that I might be tempted to thumb my nose at them, I don't want to do that. 
Because that would be tantamount to thumbing my nose at something God had done. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves. Your King James says damnation. The word means judgment. It's not entirely clear there whether Paul is specifically talking about the judgment of God or whether he's alluding to the fact that those same people that God has placed in positions of authority have been given authority to bring you into judgment for your behavior here on this earth. I live it every day in my particular line of work. Someone goes out and they break the law and sooner or later we're going to end up in a courtroom. And they're going to be charged with a crime and they're going to have to answer that charge. And if the evidence is sufficient to convict them of that charge, there will be a punishment that will be meted out as a part of rendering justice in those circumstances. And so Paul says those who resist the authorities, they will receive to themselves judgment for, and notice this, I love this in verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Rulers are not a terror to good works but to the evil. One of my favorite things about having been able to develop a close working relationship with the police officers in Humboldt where I work is the fact that when I see a police car come around the corner or a guy wearing a badge walking down the street, I know I've got a friend. And you probably don't know much about the little town of Humboldt in West Tennessee. Mark knows a little bit about it. It's a pretty rough place. There's an awful lot of gang activity there. It just happens to sit on a pipeline from Chicago, Illinois to Memphis, Tennessee where drugs traffic back and forth. And the gangs and the violence and the drugs... Sometimes the human trafficking that go through that little town would boggle your mind. But for those who are trying to do right, that badge, that police car, it's not a sign of oppression, that's a friend. That's a deliverer. That's someone who is there to help. And thanks be to God for those people. They're not a terror to those who do good works, only to those who do evil. I can't, I'll never forget the time that I was appointed to represent a young man, and the charge began with resisting arrest. It ended up with a whole lot more than that. And I began to investigate the facts, and the bottom line was this young man was wanted for questioning not because he had done anything wrong, but because the authorities were investigating a crime and they had heard that he had been there and perhaps seen what had happened. They just wanted to know what he knew. Police car pulls up on the street. He sees them, takes off running as fast as he can go. And I sat down with him and I said, son, why did you run? He said, well, it was a police officer. I said, well, were you doing anything wrong? No. So why would you run? Well, that's just what I do. Well, I came to find out he had a pocket full of marijuana too. But I was trying to explain to that young man, son, if you weren't doing anything wrong, you don't have to run. 
Those guys are not going to do you any harm. They're there to help. The terror to evil, yeah. Not to those who do good. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on and says in verse 3, Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he's a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. Now here's the other side of the authority that God has given. The emphasis in this passage, as you've seen over and over and over again, has been on the good. He's a minister to you for good. He's there to help. You don't have to be afraid of him if you're doing right. He's a terror to evil, but he'll praise those who are doing good. But don't forget, God has given this individual the authority to bear the sword. Now the sword, obviously here, is a symbol of deadly power. The sword is the idea of executing punishment. Think about it. You've seen the statue, haven't you? Lady Justice, the lady who's blindfolded, and remember her hand holds the scales. Have you ever noticed what's in the other hand? She's holding a sword. She holds the scales, obviously, to symbolize the idea of balancing, doing what's right, doing what's equitable and fair. She wears the blindfold to symbolize the idea that it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, you're going to get justice. But why is the sword there? Well, the sword is there, ladies and gentlemen, because God put it there. The sword is there because God gave authority to the civil authorities to bear the sword, and he said they bear it not in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject. But I love this, don't you, in verse 5? Not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. You ever done anything just because you didn't want to deal with the consequences of making the opposite choice? I have. Sometimes I make a choice simply because the other choice carries with it something I don't want to deal with. Paul says that's not the only reason for doing right in your dealings with the civil authorities. Not just because they bear the sword. Not just because God has given them authority to administer wrath. But he said for conscience sake. Also, I grew up in the eastern part of this state over around Gadsden and Talladega. Do you know how we'd express that over there? Because it's the right thing to do. That's how. You're to be subject to them because it's the right thing to do. The idea is very close kin to what Paul wrote to children in Ephesians chapter 6. Remember? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Very, very similar idea here. For conscience sake, because it's the right thing to do. For this cause, he says, you pay tribute also, verse 6, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. 
What are you saying, Paul? That paying taxes to support law enforcement officers is a part of God's plan? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. That's precisely what he's saying. And it's the right thing to do for a child of God. Oh, I had a host of other passages I wanted to talk to you about this morning. And our time's already drawing close. But notice this. He says in verse 7, Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I'm so glad you're having this day today because I think that's doing exactly what Paul says in verse 7, rendering honor to some folks to whom honor is badly overdue. Honor to whom honor. As we begin to think about putting this into practice, turn with me over to the book of Titus chapter 3. And notice some of Paul's closing instructions to Titus as he begins to talk about things that Titus is to teach to the folks that Paul sent him to preach to. He says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Put them in mind to be subject to to principalities and powers, rulers and authorities. Be subject to them. Not only that, to obey magistrates. Who are magistrates? Those are lawmakers. In other words, Paul is saying, Titus, you teach those Christians to be law-abiding citizens, supportive of their civil authorities. It's a part of Christianity. Because the powers that be are ordained of God. We talked this morning in our Bible class hour about the idea of sovereignty. The right to rule that flows down from God. And as we've seen in this passage and a host of others, God has delegated the right to rule to civil authorities and He has instructed His children that being faithful to God means being a good citizen. So I ask you this morning, are you a good citizen? Are you a good citizen of the community in which you live? Are you a good citizen in the kingdom of God? Really only you and God know the answer to that question. But let me suggest this to you. If this morning you're not a citizen in good standing in the kingdom of God, You've come to the right place. Here, by looking into God's Word, you can find out exactly what you need to know in order to restore your citizenship and good standing in the kingdom of God. The Bible tells you what you need to do. You see, sin is what separates us from God, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. It's what takes us out of good standing in God's kingdom. And all men everywhere have sinned, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. So what do we do about it? The Bible tells us in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. You see, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But God gave His Son so that we should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, how does that happen? Faith cometh of hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. 
So giving our attention to the Scriptures, we find that these things are written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing we might have life through His name, John 20, 30, and 31. But faith alone won't save us. In fact, the only time in all of Scripture that we find the words faith and only together is in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, and it's got a knot in front of it. James said, you see how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So we learn that the faith that we are taught by examining the Scriptures must be put into practice. That's why the Bible says that God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. Repent simply means to change your mind about living in sin on purpose and make up your mind you're going to live differently from here on out. It's what Paul was describing in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 when he said, Be not conformed to this world, but rather be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So believing in Jesus, we repent of the sins that have separated us from God. And then Jesus said we must confess him before men. He said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Whosoever confesseth me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever denieth me before men, him will I deny before my Father which is in heaven. And then we're buried in the waters of baptism. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. On the day of Pentecost, to those who had come to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, who interrupted His sermon, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the most beautiful words in Scripture, for the remission of your sins. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Saved, And we find in the last verse of Acts chapter 2 that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Those who had once been separated from God by sin now had their citizenship in good standing restored. Would you do that this morning? Or perhaps you've become a child of God, but you've wandered astray. Like Brother Simon did in Acts chapter 8 when he tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from Peter and John. And Peter said, your money perish with you. He also told him to repent of that wickedness and pray the forgiveness of God. Acts 8 and verse 22. And John promises us in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 that if we'll confess our sins as erring Christians, God is faithful and just to forgive us. If you're not a citizen in good standing this morning... In God's community. We can help you with that. Won't you come while together we stand and as we sing? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is 